Welcome to the sermon podcast of South Hills Church in Costa Mesa. My name is Chris Kretzu, and I'm the campus pastor here. Thank you for carving out the time to listen to this today. I hope that you will be encouraged and challenged, and ultimately that you'll have a deeper sense of God's love for you. I'll be back after the message is over, but until then, I hope that you enjoy this episode. When I was 11 years old, I got the best Christmas gift of my life. Uh, It was one of those Christmas gifts, and maybe you've had one like this, or a birthday gift where uh, you just, you wanted it, but you never in a million years thought that you would get it. Uh, It was that type of Christmas gift. My family, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. We had, what's the opposite of a lot of money? That's what we had. Uh, That's the quantities of monies that we had. And so this wasn't a cheap gift. Uh, And this was something that I looked at over and over again. And I was asking for probably for maybe two years, maybe a little bit more. And this Christmas morning, we, because uh, my, my mom, she's very traditional, we all have to wait like in our rooms until we get the verbal okay, and then we're coming out, and she's got the camera, but it, this is a while ago, so this is a film camera, and everything's got to be focused, and we come around the corner, and that year was the year that I got a drum set for Christmas, and we have a picture. Yes. I have always been so cool, you guys. Now, if you are a drummer or a musician, you'll notice there's some odd things happening here. And this plays into the fact that we didn't have a lot of monies. Uh, There's no drum throne, as it's called. That's a a dining room table chair that I was sitting on. And there are no cymbals. Uh, There's no hi-hat. There's no crash, which I used to think was because we were poor. But now I think it's because my parents knew that they didn't want to hear that sound also in addition to everything. No, but, uh, but I got this drum set. It blew me away. I, I never in a million years that I think I would actually get one. Um, and I played that thing every day. Uh, and again, while I thought that this was an expensive gift, now as a parent, what I realized the real cost of that gift was, of my parents listening to this 11-year-old just bang on this out-of-tune drum set, having no clue what he was doing. But do you know what I could play with no cymbals? Let's hear it. Uh, I could play <laughs> Wipeout. Uh, which is basically just like three minutes of a tom roll. And every day I would just play this and practice. And then I would, you know, call my mom in as though she wasn't able to hear me already throughout the entire house. Like, no, listen to me play this now. I've gotten better. And, and you could almost see the look on her face like, have you? Have you, got, though, gotten any better? Like, you keep practicing and it still just sounds bad. Uh, she never said those words. My mom is so sweet. But, but there is this, uh, this aspect of, of the joy and the fun, and I loved it, and I tried really, really hard, and I did play drums for, I I ended up getting a little bit better, Um, but there was a season where uh, it didn't matter how much time I put in, how much effort I had, like, it just never seemed like it actually made a difference, and we've probably all known some people in our lives, we've all had some relationships, maybe it's something in your own life where you were super committed to something, you loved the idea of something, you were doing something, practicing, rehearsing, uh, trying to grow in a skill, and it just felt like no matter how much effort or time you put in, it didn't actually make that much of a difference. Or maybe you've talked to somebody else, and it seems like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's... I don't know if it's getting better for you. Uh, I've talked before about uh, how I go to, um, I have a therapist and I go to counseling and, and every time I bring it up, some of you guys are like, really? You go? You should probably double up a couple weeks, like maybe do two a days or something. I don't know. 
Um, but there's this, this reality where for many of us, there is this, this aspect where we want to grow, we want to get better, we're committed to something, we like the idea of something, but we just don't always necessarily see it playing out. And for us, when we look at other people, it can be discouraging or even disillusioning. Um, and so this is a, an idea, it's one that Jesus talks about too, this idea that there's really no sense in working towards something that doesn't actually have this payoff. Uh, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said this, he said, wisdom is shown to be right by its results. Wisdom is shown to be right by its results, meaning it's not just the idea, it's not just the thought or the concept that proves that it's a good thought or concept. It's what it does. It's how, what comes out of it. What comes out of the practice? What comes out of the commitment? What comes out of the choices? What comes out of the, the ideals? What comes out of the rehearsals? It's not a good idea or a good habit or a good relationship unless it's producing something good. Otherwise, it's just, we're kind of just going through the motions. We're just going through the work. And honestly, this is a big critique that a lot of people have about Christianity. When they look at Christians, they're not convinced it's actually doing anything good. What's it producing? Uh, I follow Jesus. Really? I'm a Christian. I go to church every week. Uh, what do they teach you at that church? And this is something that a lot of people that aren't Christians, they look at uh, Jesus followers and, and they have these questions. But if we want to be honest, we have these same questions also. We look at other people that we know that say that they're Christians or they follow Jesus or they this or they that. And there's a sense of like, man, are you, really? Like, what are you putting into this? What, you have this idea, this commitment, but is it actually changing anything? Is it, is it actually playing out in your lives? Oh, man, I think one of the, the things, we're wrapping up this series, Not Interested, today, and, and we're looking at these rational reasons why people walk away from Christianity. And the third reason that we're looking at is that Christianity often makes people more arrogant, selfish, or vengeful, not less. And if the goal is to become more Christ-like, it doesn't seem like a lot of Christians are making that much progress sometimes, especially from an outsider's perspective. Uh, and even when we look inside the church, inside our relationships, inside our connections, and maybe inside our own hearts, there's this concept, this idea that's like, man, I, I want this. They want this. I'm committed to this. I like this idea, but I'm not sure if I'm actually seeing results, change, progress. I love cooking shows. And uh, one of my favorite cooking shows uh, is a show called Chopped. And they are given like a random basket of ingredients, usually one really bad ingredient. And then like, great, you have to make a delicious meal in 20 minutes or whatever the time is. So it's these four contestants and they're crazily cooking and dropping things and accidentally cutting their fingers and all that, you know, it's like this whole like race to make this incredible dish that they had no idea what ingredients they were going to have. And, and oftentimes, and if you watch the show enough, like I do, if you're slightly addicted to it, then you'll see more often than not, one of the contestants will show up, they will serve the judges their dish, and the judge will take a bite, and you see a look on their face, and you recognize the look on the face. Uh, it's this look of, mm, that's not good. And the question that is asked in almost every episode is, did you taste this? before you gave it to me? And every time they ask that question, without fail, the chef says, no. 
which feels like a really silly thing, right? As a chef, as someone who's trying to win a competition, as someone who's trying to keep their name in a, in a good light, uh, as someone who's trying to win thousands of dollars, and they're, they're giving this chance to give these incredibly famous chefs their food, their dish. It's like, here, try this. And there's a sense of like, wait, you didn't even try it? That is problematic. That, that's confusing. And, and in, again, this carries over into other aspects of our life. If your kids are little gremlins, then why would I want to take parenting advice from you? I'm not looking at anybody specific. Sorry. I know I looked right there, but it's not you guys. Uh, or after we had our first son, we got a ton of parenting advice from people that didn't have kids at all, which is the best kind of parenting advice. Uh, if you struggle with finances or if you have uh, dealt with uh, challenges in your finances, bankruptcy, whatever it is, I, I wonder if it would make sense for me to take financial advice from you. Uh, if you went to Stagecoach, why would I take music advice from you? <clears throat> yes, I am looking specifically at a few people. And why would, I be, why would I choose to become a Christian if the people that say that they're Christians are living in ways that is gross? If they're walking around hurting other people, why would I be attracted to that? If they don't want to listen to other people's perspective, if they don't want to build relationships with people that, yes, are like them, but also people that are unlike them, why would, why would that be something that would be attractive to me or to anyone? As a whole, we are often perceived as uh, judgmental, narrow-minded, saying one thing and doing another, not practicing what we preach. Um, there's an organization that put up billboards with a, a text message hotline, and they asked people to describe Christians in one word. And the top descriptions uh, were hateful, gullible, judgmental, mean, and hypocritical, which is like a pretty incredible Yelp review. Uh, I mean, there's just a sense of, uh, I get that. And let me be clear, that's not all Christians. And that's not everybody's perceptions of Christianity. But it is a quickly growing reality for a lot of people. It's a perception that a lot of people have. The word on the street, the, the, the reality that most people are familiar with and, and that believe about us is that we say one thing and we do another and that we don't live any differently than anyone else. And there's research that backs us up. One survey showed that when it comes to the substance of people's daily choices, actions, and attitudes, that there is no or next to no difference between Christians and everyone else. Uh, another study uh, found that 84% of people that knew at least one committed Christian, out of 84% of them, only 15% could identify anything about that person and how their life was different than their own. Uh, they know these committed Christians, and only 15% of those people were able to say, yeah, I can point out something specifically about them that's different than my own or anyone else's. There's this disconnect. Psychologists call it a cognitive dissonance, uh, but Jesus just called it hypocrisy. There's this disconnect between what we say and what we do, about what we, what we claim and how we act. Uh, it's, it's so important for us to understand it, and it's not a new thing. It's something that Jesus talked about as well. In Matthew chapter 23, uh, and this is the message paraphrase version, but 
Jesus is talking to the religious leaders at that time, and, uh, uh, and he's talking to a crowd that was around them and, and just kind of speaking in general. But it was, it was um, a, a challenging statement, to say the least. Matthew 23, it says, the religion scholars and Pharisees are competent teachers in God's law. Great. That seems positive. You won't go wrong in following their teachings on Moses. All right. This Yelp review is going well. But be careful about following them. They talk a good line, but they don't live it. They don't take it into their hearts and live it out in their behavior. It's all spit and polish veneer. Jesus is essentially talking about these people that have all of the right information. And he's saying, you should learn the knowledge that they have, but don't do the things that they do. They are the source of information, but they are not the model that you're supposed to follow. There's a, dis, a, a, a difference, a cognitive dissonance, a, a sense of hypocrisy in this. They're, they're telling others to do things publicly that they're not doing privately. And even though there is truth in, this th- in the things that they say, their actions are speaking so much louder than their what? Their words. There's this disconnect One author explained it this way. He said, knowledge is like an intellectual calorie. It's like intellectual calories. A calorie is a unit of energy, energy that our bodies use to get things done. They're the fuel that we need to live in this world. But if our intake begins to exceed our output, eventually the very fuel that food gives us to be energetic and healthy can end up making us unhealthy. And, and this idea of, of the knowledge, of the information, the, the information about what God says, the information about Christianity, the information about faith, it is good to learn and to grow and to take it in, but it should be fueling the way that we live. And if it's not turning uh, into some sort of action, some sort of movement, some sort of progress, then it begins to make us spiritually sick. Hypocrisy happens when our knowledge exceeds our application. When our knowledge exceeds our application, that's when we start to become hypocritical. When we know more and we say more and we can quote more and we can point out the flaws more, then we're actually living out the way of Jesus. This is when we start to fall into this trap of hypocrisy. And part of the reason why Jesus calls out these people uh, is to wake them up because I don't think they even realize that they're doing it. We all get in this action, this activity. We kind of go on autopilot mode. It's like when you're driving your car home after work or whatever it is, and you just kind of like find yourself at home and you don't necessarily remember making all the turns. Not me. I'm a very aware driver. Um, or on you know maybe a different day of the week, a Saturday or a Sunday when you're driving somewhere, but you automatically just t- start taking the turns to get to work. There's like this ability that our brains have, and, and it's really intentional. They do everything they can to save energy. And so every type of pattern or rhythm, they want to automatically lock those things in. And I think the same thing happens with us spiritually, where we start to uh, maybe retain some of these spiritual ideas, these uh, biblical concepts, these Bible verses, and and we can hold it in our heads and we can even spout it out almost at a moment's notice. But when it comes to living it out, oftentimes there's a gap, there's a struggle. And Paul 
Well, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to new Christians in the book of Romans, he says that they have to have an honest evaluation of themselves. And that's hard. That's, that's a scary thing. It's difficult to do. Nobody really wants to slow down enough to take that time. But it's important, and I think that's what Jesus is providing in this passage in Matthew when he's trying to point this out. He's trying to help give like a, a mirror or a reflection, kind of help shock them out of their comfort or their rut. And we have to figure out how do I find that space? How do I create a, a way for me to have an honest evaluation of myself? How do I put in the work to become more self-aware? I don't think anybody wants to be a horrible person. None of us want to be hypocrites. But without thinking, we're not aware of the times and the ways that we slip into those types of activities. And this is why it's so important for us to stay in community with each other. This is why we talk about small groups. This is why the people that are a part of small groups are better than everybody else. <laughs> I'm mostly joking. No, I'm just kidding. But there is such a value in being part of a small group because these people start to know you. They start to recognize you and your patterns and your behaviors and your blind spots and your challenges. And it is so beautiful and painful when you have people that are willing to kind of push back against some of these areas in your life. And for a lot of us, we, we live in such a way that we're isolated and there's nobody in our lives that we allow or that is close enough to be able to help us recognize where the cognitive dissonance is, where the hypocrisy is starting to show up. And it's not just about spiritual things. This has to do with a lot of different categories. It has to do with our marriages or our parenting or our friendships or our finances or our emotional health. All of these areas we benefit by having others around us that are able to speak to us about these things. We counter hypocrisy by being transparent about our flaws, acting first and talking second. Faith is action-oriented. It's not just about what you know, but about what you do with what you know. So Jesus talked about this idea in Matthew chapter 7. Um, there's a, a longer passage. I just want to look at these two verses. He's, he's teaching and he says, a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. And Jesus had every ability and right uh, and the life experience to use whatever terminology he wanted. And he went as basic as possible with trees and fruit. And he said, by their actions, not by their words. By their actions, not by their knowledge. By their actions, not by how much writing or highlighting is in their Bible. Although that is a great thing. It's their actions that allow us to identify others. And I don't know if you guys have ever been in this situation before where you start to think about this idea and you're like, well, I know a lot of people that are incredible people and they're not Christians. They have like these beautiful, I mean, they're loving, they serve, they're generous, they, they have all of these incredible qualities, but they are like outspokenly not a Christian. And that is sad for us. <laughs> it's sad for us that there are people that are beating us at our own game. And I don't know if that's the right phrase. I didn't write that in my notes, so you can fact check me after service. But it's sad. 
It's incredible for them. And I love that God's love is able to move through all kinds of people and places and situations, but it shouldn't be so surprising that there are so many people that are better at this than Jesus followers. We should be the best at this. We should be the most kind, the most loving. What does it mean to produce good fruit? In Galatians, Paul is writing to a a church in a place called Galatia, and he says, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what it looks like for us as we begin trusting Jesus. This is what it should look like for us when we begin following Jesus. This is not a, uh, a checklist of things that you have to formulate in your lives, because that just turns into another list of rules and expectations you have to follow. Ugh, I got to make sure I hit my self-control quota. I got to make sure that I hit, you know, that I have like all of the points for my loving score today. We can make some adjustments on this with really intentional, a lot of effort and focus. We can make some of these things happen. But what Paul is saying is that as we follow Jesus, as we spend our lives not only reading and learning about who Jesus is, not only interacting with other Christians and being part of a community, but also living in our daily lives, following Jesus, living the way that Jesus calls us to live, that these things should start happening naturally. These things should start showing up in our lives and our minds and our relationships naturally. It says the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in your life. As we grow closer to Jesus. As Christians, we should become more humble, selfless, and merciful. As we follow Jesus, we should become more humble, not more arrogant. We should become more selfless, not more selfish. We should become more merciful, not more vindictive or condemning. As we follow Jesus, these things should grow in our lives. There's a challenge for a lot of us because um, some people, it feels like they uh, put their trust in Jesus, and and maybe you have had these experiences. They become a Christian, and and you start seeing this change in their lives, uh, and their lives are clearly uh, changing. They're becoming different. They're growing. There's something about them. They're like, man, that's incredible. I would like that. Uh, And maybe I haven't seen that happen very much in my own life. Or maybe what's the difference between person A and person B? Uh, Both of them are Christians, but this one's life looks uh, very, it's marked by like reckless generosity and patience and they serve in our community and they are so kind to people and and this person says that they're a Christian and, you know, (laughs) sure. What's the difference between these two things? And there's a spiritual word, a kind of a, a theological word, I think is important for us to, to look at because oftentimes we're all reading the same Bible and we're listening to the same sermons and we're receiving the same challenges. And one of the primary things that kind of marks the difference between these people that have the information and people that are able to live out and are experiencing changed lives is the difference between salvation and sanctification, 
which is a theological word. Uh, it's a word that I grew up hearing. Maybe you grew up in a certain kind of church that always talked about how you needed to become sanctified. And there's truth to that. Uh, we don't use this word a whole lot, but salvation is something that is offered to us by God. It is something that we cannot experience on our own. If we could save ourselves, then we would have had no need for Jesus to show up. Salvation is something that we are offered by God. It's saying yes to his acceptance and forgiveness and guidance. And sanctification, the second part of this, is this ongoing process where we partner with God to see change in our hearts and our minds. In the scripture, maybe you've heard these verses where it talks about be uh, transformed in your mind or the renewal of your mind. There's this ongoing process of being made new. We are saved when we put our trust in Jesus, and then we're invited into this process where we continue to be transformed and healed and made whole. And God is not going to just do everything that we are supposed to do. He's inviting us to be a part of the process. He's inviting us to rely on him and his strength and his love, the spirit that lives inside of us. And it comes from an awareness of our blind spots, of the areas that, that we are struggling with. Sanctification is partnering with God to think and act and live more like Jesus. There's a part for us to do and a part for God to do. It's important that we understand these two things. And so what is one of the most practical ways? And there's probably a thousand things that we could do. And I just want to talk about one today. Practically speaking, how can I continue to do these things that will help me be transformed, that will help me continue to think differently or live differently or act differently? There's, there's one that I want to look at today, and Jesus says it in Luke chapter 9. Jesus said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It's not the most fun statement that Jesus made. But this is, I think, at the core of so much about what it means for us to be loving, generous, kind, patient, have self-control, all of these things that we're called to embody, all of these things that the best people are marked by these attributes they all are able to be tracked back to this place of giving up our own preference, of taking up our cross and following the way of Jesus. Taking up your cross is the painful process of putting God's way above your way. It's self-denial. It's pushing down your own ego. It's trading your definition of good and evil for God's definition of good and evil. It's saying no to how you would naturally prioritize and spend and act and speak and, and care. By, it's saying no to the way that you would naturally do these things and saying yes to, to intentionally doing these things the way that God is calling us to do these things. It's saying I'm going to set my own preference, my own convenience, my own way aside. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to follow the way of Jesus, the way that Jesus did this. The cross isn't something that Jesus did just for us. It's also something that we do with him. One of our pastors sent this line this week, and I just thought it was so powerful. It said, Jesus didn't die so we don't have to. He died to teach us how to. 
that on the other side of it is love and selflessness and generosity and sincerity and all of these things that we long for. Yes, we don't have to pay the price for sin, but he modeled something for us. And even before he went to the cross, he said, take up your cross and follow me. And even at the Last Supper, before he was crucified, he talked about how his body would be broken and and he would give his life. And then he said, do this in remembrance of me. There is this invitation throughout the story for us to remember that it's not just about the fact that Jesus did this for us, although that is where the power is. The invitation on the other side of it is for us to follow his example. He taught us how to do this. And if you never crucify anything about yourself, you will not grow. And we don't want to do this because crucifixion is painful. We've heard. That's a loud buzzing. Is that me? It's gone. We don't want to do it. It's, un- it's uncomfortable. We don't want to die to ourselves. We don't want to put our own preferences aside. But do you know the area that we're really comfortable with crucifixion? Uh, we are really comfortable with crucifying others. It's pretty easy to see the things that other people need to stop, the ways that other people have done terrible things. And we can point out quickly and conveniently all of the ways that other people need to make adjustments and change and and sacrifice and give up their own preference. It's interesting because we police so many people around us. And as we do this, it's important for us to remember that this isn't what we're called to do. We're not called to point out other people's crosses. We're called to take up our own. I love our church so much. And one of the primary reasons why I love our church, uh, maybe the primary reason why I love our church, is because you do not have to believe the right things to come in this door. It is a place that is truly open and welcome to anyone exactly as they are. And so as you read some of these things in the scripture where it talks about, you know, the religious leaders keeping the non-religious people out of the doors, like, that's not our struggle. We don't have that challenge. We don't, we don't point fingers at the people that come in and be like, hey, you don't fit here. You don't deserve, you got to clean yourself up to come here. I love that we are truly a place, the perfect place for imperfect people. But the place that we do struggle, in my opinion is in looking at other Christians, in looking at other churches. We experience that level of hypocrisy or the cognitive dissonance or the ability to point out the faults and the flaws and the issues and the cracks when it comes to other Christians and other churches. Maybe it's Christians that vote differently than you do or Christians that believe differently than you do or Christians that show up in a different way than you do. There is this ability that we have to just absolutely crucify other people in our lives. And it's super important that we recognize this. And Paul actually talked about this because in the earliest churches, there was this beautiful mixture of like brand new people to this type of spirituality and people that have been kind of following the Jewish law and this one true God for their entire life. And it was messy and it was crazy. And Paul had to keep talking about this over and over and over again. And for us, I think it's an important thing for us to remember these ideas. It's not about our struggle in keeping non-Christians out. We're fine with that. But we get real picky 
about the people who claim to be Christians. We get real judgy about this. And in Romans chapter 4, or I'm sorry, 14, Paul said, accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. And the reality for every single one of us is that when we look at someone else who believes differently than we do, we assume that they're dumb. (laughs) They read it wrong. They just aren't godly enough. They're not following the real Jesus. And what Paul is saying is accept other believers who are weak in their faith. So if I really think that they're struggling and I've got it figured out, then I'm on the hook for not arguing with them about it. I'm on the hook for caring for them. In the next chapter, he says, we who are strong, which is obviously me in all of my relationships, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of those weak Christians who wore or didn't wear masks, who voted or didn't vote for my person. They are not that godly, but still we have to bear with their failings, not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up, which is different than roasting them on Facebook or talking poorly behind their backs. For even Christ did not please himself. And then in Galatians, it says, for you've been called to live in freedom, which is great, and we love that part. (laughs) But, my brothers and sisters, don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Your sinful nature is not talking about murder. It's talking about our ability, our desire, our broken aspect of being able to judge others. This is at the very core of our brokenness. We put ourselves in the seat that only God can sit in, and we make judgments about who is in and who is out and who is less right or more right or all of these things. And over and over again, we're reminded, if we assume that we are strong and accurate and correct, we are required to have patience and extend love and not to use my freedom to say, hey, I'm right, you're wrong, deal with it but to use my freedom to actually serve the people that are different or difficult or frustrating. Don't use your freedom to indulge your natural desires, but give yourself over to the relational constraints of love. Spiritual maturity is measured according to how well you serve, not how much you know. And if people are looking at your life and there's not enough love-oriented action towards others, we have, to, we have to become aware of that. We have to be able to look intently and honestly at our lives. I cannot love my neighbor without occasionally saying no to myself. I cannot love my neighbor without occasionally saying, it's okay, Chris. It's okay that they're different. It's okay that they think differently. It's okay that they vote differently. It's okay that they believe differently. It's okay that they act differently. Uh, One of us, uh, we're we're having these differences, and it's okay for me to say no to myself. I don't have to get on this soapbox every time. 
I don't have to make a point every time. I don't have to be right every time. In fact, the most clear way that I can exhibit godliness is by loving them exactly as they are, by welcoming them, by saying, I'm here, I'm with you, you're my brother, you're my sister. I'm not going to bite and devour and destroy us and our faith, which I think is what the challenge is for so many people that look at Christianity. That's why they think that we're judgmental and vindictive and and all these things, because we want to make sure that everybody is right the way that I'm right. There's a a story about um, the Knights Templar, and uh, these knights were, um, it was kind of during this bizarre time where every one of these battles was believed to be God-ordained, and they would go in and they would just wreak havoc. And and, uh, this leader wanted to make sure that before his army went into battle that they were uh, safely going to make it to heaven in case they died. And so he asked for them to be baptized. And the, uh, the priest said that, well, I can't baptize them because they're going to take their swords and go slaughter a bunch of people. And I don't believe that that's the right thing to do. And so they figured out this workaround. And so there was this entire regiment that was baptized in water while holding their sword up above their head. So they were like, you know what? Let's baptize from here down. But there's going to be part of this that still is mine. There's going to be part of this where I still get to do what I want to do. There's going to be part of this where I still get to live how I want to live. There's going to be part of this experience, part of this action, part of my life that I'm going to hold back from turning over to the way that Jesus is calling me to live. And I think that so many of us struggle with this, and it's not necessarily an intentional thought for all of us. And we're not doing it because we want to be evil or problematic, but we just become blind to these areas that I'm unwilling to give this one over. I'm unwilling to die to myself in this area. I'm unwilling to crucify this selfish desire that I have because the desire to be right or greater or whatever it is, that's stronger. And I have to ask you and myself, I have to ask us, what does it look like for us to hand over everything in our lives to the way of Jesus, to set our own ways and preferences aside? And as Jesus said, to be willing to take up our cross and follow him. Let's pray together. Well, regardless of where you may be at in your faith journey, I believe that everyone has a next step that they can take. If you'd like more information about what it means to put your trust in Jesus, information about getting baptized, or maybe even attending a Discover class to grow more in your faith, you can visit us online at southhills.org forward slash Costa Mesa, and then scroll down to the next steps section. If you'd like more information about tithing or supporting South Hills financially, you can visit southhills.org forward slash giving. Thanks again for listening today, and I hope that I get to see you soon.